and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Carter. Thank you, as always, for listening. In our last episode, we followed Flavius Claudius Julianus, now known to us as Julian the Apostate, as he was made Caesar, or Junior Emperor, by the Augustus, or Senior Emperor, who happened to be his cousin, Constantius. Constantius was responsible for the murder of Julian's family when he was very young, as well as the execution of his older brother Gallus later on. He kept Julian in captivity for most of his young life, from about age 6 to 17. For Julian's part, he would have been content to have spent most of his life enveloped in study. He was a voracious reader, drawn particularly to philosophy and theology. He became intensely interested in the old pagan religion of ancient Rome, and eventually renounced the religion of his birth, Christianity, in favor of it. Christianity was the dominant religion of the age, and Emperor Constantius was a particularly devout Christian, going so far as to issue edicts that outlawed certain pagan rites and practices. Julian was very careful to hide his new religion from public view lest he run afoul of the emperor and share the fate of his other family members. Nevertheless, in the year 355 CE, Constantius dragged Julian away from his studies, christened him as Caesar, and shipped him off to Gaul in order to help suppress the barbarian raids there. Julian stoically accepted this line of duty. He trained with his soldiers, intensely studied tactics and strategies of the great commanders, and eventually took direct command of his own soldiers. The emperor had expected Julian to be merely a figurehead, a representative of imperial authority in the region, while his cronies carried out the real work that had to be done. Julian defied his and everyone else's expectations and became more successful than even he had perhaps anticipated. He decisively defeated a coalition of seven hostile Alemannic tribes at the Battle of Argentoratum, modern-day Strasbourg, capturing their high king and sending him to Constantius's court as a gift. Afterwards, Julian did what so few Roman military leaders had dared to do before him. He crossed the Rhine River, the traditional border that marked the outer edge of Roman civilization, in pursuit of the perfidious Alemanni. He was successful in bringing the remaining seven kings that fought against him at Argentoratum to heel. But for all these victories, the Emperor Constantius was able to lay claim to all the honor and glory, and not Julian himself. Julian began to silently resent his cousin for this. At the same time, Constantius began to worry that Julian may be in the process of becoming too powerful. So he tried to instruct his cronies, who staffed the upper levels of the Gallic bureaucracy, to hinder Julian in his attempts to reconstruct the province. A sort of cold war played out between the two imperial partners one that became hot in February of the year 360. The previous year, war had broken out in the east between Rome and Sassan and Persia, and the situation was looking rather desperate for the Romans. Constantius sent a message to Julian ordering him to redeploy over half the men under his command to Mesopotamia in order to fight off the Sassanids. For all we know, Julian was prepared to oblige him, but his men were not. Most of them were actually natives of Gaul and they had no desire to depart from the homeland they had just so recently finished safeguarding against the Germanic threat, only to be marched halfway across the known world to fight and die in some desert. In a masterstroke of political maneuvering, Julian harnessed the discontent of his soldiers, and used it to have himself declared as Augustus. Open conflict between Julian and Constantius now seemed to be all but inevitable, but it didn't necessarily have to end with the deaths of either one. Very soon after he was declared Augustus, Julian sent a reply to Constantius. In this letter, Julian attempted to negotiate some sort of compromise wherein Julian would acknowledge Constantius's seniority, 
and offered to provide the emperor with the reinforcements he needed by conscripting men from Hispania, but he had conditions for his cooperation. For one, he asked to be afforded sovereignty over the provinces of Gaul, Britannia, and Hispania, the provinces that were originally placed under his jurisdiction when he was made Caesar in the first place. Furthermore, Julian requested that he be given the power to appoint and dismiss civil administrators and army officers, a power that heretofore had been exclusively held by Constantius, and one that had caused Julian no small degree of trouble in the past. By the time Julian's letter reached Constantius, he had already heard the news of Julian's treacherous actions, and was understandably rather furious. His rebuke to Julian's rather tactful missive reflected this anger. He cautioned the Caesar not to have any ideas above his station. Disregarding his request, Constantius's letter also contained orders for a whole slate of new dismissals and appointments of senior officers within Julian's staff. Constantius ended the letter by berating Julian for not being sufficiently grateful to him for all that he had done for him, having raised him as an orphan and elevated him to high office. Julian's laconic response was, quote, Is my father's murderer seriously rebuking me for being an orphan? End quote. Also in Julian's response, he informed the emperor that he would accept only one of his new appointments, and that he had already filled the other positions himself. Before sending Constantius's courier back on his way, Julian held a spectacle to make sure that the courier bore witness. He summoned the soldiers to the parade ground and read Constantius's letter aloud to them. The men were incensed at Constantius's condemnation of their actions, which led them to begin a chant of Julian Augustus, just as they had done on that fateful night. Julian wanted to make sure Constantius knew that he and his men were serious, and would not be cowed so easily. This was tantamount to a declaration of war. The only person that was realistically capable of de-escalating the conflict at this point was Constantius's wife Eusebia. If you will recall, Eusebia was the one who had earlier interceded on behalf of Julian when he had stood accused of treason. She was his staunchest and seemingly only ally in Constantius's court. Unfortunately for the both of them, Empress Eusebia died at some point that year of an undetermined illness. War was all but inevitable, but it did not break out immediately more pressing matters concerned both parties at the moment. For Constantius, he surely realized that by now he was being threatened on two fronts, but he opted to remain in the east in order to neutralize the Persian threat before turning to deal with his upstart cousin. Julian, meanwhile, had to consolidate his power in Gaul before he could venture forth to meet Constantius in battle. Thus, what ensued was a war of words that lasted for about a year and a half. Both Augusti dispatched letter after vitriolic letter to one another over the course of seven months, while both mustered their forces. Julian carried out an initial purge of Constantius's appointees in the upper echelons of the bureaucracy and military, he went on a brief campaign against the Franks yet again, and he embarked on a tour inspecting the military installations of his province. The following spring, the Alamanni under their chieftain Vadomar began carrying out raids across the Rhine River. Vadomar's forces proved to be much stronger than Julian had anticipated, as the two legions he sent out to halt his incursions were ambushed and defeated. What made matters worse was that Vadomar was revealed to have been acting at the behest of Constantius this entire time. Julian took alternate measures to eliminate this threat. He enticed Vadomar to travel to Roman territory under a flag of truce, and at his first opportunity, he had the man arrested and deported to Hispania. Julian also learned from other intercepted correspondence that Constantius was beginning to prepare for war in earnest. He was negotiating with local Persian officials to cease hostilities, and was beginning to requisition arms in massive quantities. Julian was faced with a decision. 
Would he try to fight Constantius in Gaul, where he was strongest, or would he attempt to take the fight to him? Julian's decision, like at the Battle of Argentoratum, was to go on the offensive. By any metric, he was severely outmatched. As of then, he had only about 25,000 men and a small handful of provinces under his control, while Constantius could theoretically marshal the resources of the entire rest of the empire. But he and the bulk of his army were still in Mesopotamia. Everything west of that, including the road to the capital city of Constantinople, was left relatively unguarded. The plan was quickly settled. Julian had to strike east as soon as possible, along the way seizing the valuable provinces of Italy and Illyria, and taking Constantinople before Constantius could get there first. In the summer of 361, Julian mustered his troops in the town of Vienne, and issued them their orders. Amazingly, the same body of men who were prepared to turn on their commander if he allowed them to be sent off to Mesopotamia, now swore an oath to follow Julian to the very ends of the earth. Such was their fervor that when the Praetorian prefect expresses disapproval, he was mutilated and very nearly murdered by the soldiers. Julian's first objective was the province of Illyria in the modern Balkans, a vital crossroads between the eastern and western halves of the empire and an important hub of economic and military activity. Julian realized that speed was of the essence, and he made the decision to split his forces into three groups. Two-thirds were placed under his trusted subordinate commanders, Jovinus and Nevita. They were to take the conventional safe routes to Illyria, either through northern Italy or through modern Austria. Julian, in command of the remaining third of the army, took a more direct but far more dangerous route. He traveled through the Black Forest in southern Germany until he reached the Danube River, and from there he requisitioned several boats that he would use to ferry his forces downstream towards their destination. That destination was the fortress town of Sirmium, the capital and largest city in Illyria. It would be strategically impossible to press on to Constantinople without seizing the city first. The commander of Sirmium's garrison, Lucilianus, remained loyal to Constantius. He heard that Julian's army was rapidly approaching, so he rode out to meet him. Rather than risking a direct confrontation, Julian sent out a small team to abduct Lucilianus as he camped. He woke that night to find Julian himself staring him in the face, surrounded by armed guards. When Lucilianus realized that Julian did not intend to kill him immediately, he informed Julian that it was foolhardy of him to invade another man's territory with so few soldiers. Julian responded that he had best save his advice for his master Constantius, and that he did not come to seek his counsel, but rather his supplication. He was made to order his men to stand down. In return, Julian allowed him to live out the rest of his days in quiet retirement within the city. Shortly thereafter, Julian entered Sirmium. The inhabitants flung open the gates to greet him. They hailed him as Augustus, adorned him with wreaths and laurels, and escorted him to the city's imperial residence. The city's garrison swore fealty to Julian, but he did not yet trust them, so he sent them packing well out of the way into Gaul. Julian moved on and quickly occupied the city of Nysus, but as he was preparing to make the final leg of his journey, he received some bad news. The two legions of Sirmium he had sent off into Gaul went into revolt and barricaded themselves in the Italian town of Aquileia. One of his commanders had placed the city under siege, but the rebels refused to relent. Then, more news came from the east. The Persian king had withdrawn from the front lines, giving Roman forces their room to breathe. Constantius was preparing to move west to deal with Julian himself. Julian now found himself in a predicament. It was urgent that he press on to reach Constantinople before the emperor did, but he could not do so with the hostile enemy force still holed up in Aquileia. Essentially trapped in the city of Nysus, 
Julian turned to writing letters to the various major cities of the Empire, explaining the reasons for his rebellion and hoping to win their allegiance. Then, suddenly, more shocking news came from the east. Constantius, having just departed Antioch en route to Constantinople, suddenly dropped dead. The death of Emperor Constantius seems a bit too auspicious to be true. He was only 44 years old, and he was in fairly good health until the final week of his life. The illness that ended up killing him has not been identified by historians. His last act before he died was to recognize his rebellious cousin as his rightful successor. The armies of the East swore allegiance to him on the spot, and the rebellious legions at Aquileia soon followed suit once they heard the news. With all this in mind, how could Julian had not attributed the sudden turn of events to divine intervention? In the words of historian G.W. Bowersock, quote, With the elimination of the Christian Augustus, Julian felt that the gods had rewarded his long years of secret piety and devotion. Just as he'd given up shaving and stripped away the pretenses of any respect towards Constantius, so now he stripped away the pretense of being a Christian. The deferential Christian Caesar then vanished, and in his place stood the defiant pagan Augustus. End quote. Julian began to openly worship his pagan gods. Immediately upon receiving words of Constantius' death, he had his soldiers offer a sacrifice of oxen to the gods, thanking them for their favor. Marcellinus, who we must remember was actually a first-hand witness to most of these events as a soldier under Julian's command, wrote, quote, It seemed like a dream that this man of slight build, who would only just reach maturity, should, after a series of notable exploits and bloody victories over kings and peoples, should have flown from city to city with unheard speed, gaining strength wherever he appeared, and that after everything, he should finally have received imperial power by the decree of heaven, without infliction of any loss upon the state. End quote. When Julian finally entered Constantinople, the city turned out en masse to greet him, just as they had done at Sirmium. Julian's first act, after returning to the city of his birth after two decades, was to hold a funeral for his dearly departed cousin, the Emperor. Constantius's funeral was surprisingly solemn and dignified, considering the fact that he and Julian were literally about to go to war with each other mere weeks ago. When the former Emperor's coffin arrived in the city after having been transported from the east, Julian helped carry it himself, and refused to don imperial garments for the occasion. He made sure that Constantius was given the full Christian burial that he likely would have wanted. He was laid to rest in the Church of the Holy Apostles alongside his father, Constantine the Great. With Constantius dead and buried, Julian could now begin to rule in earnest. He was eager to enact his pagan agenda, to roll back the restrictions on pagan practices, and to revoke Christianity's privileged status within the empire. However, more immediate matters demanded his attention. Before he could enact anything, something had to be done about the government that his cousin had left behind. The first order of business was to remove all of Constantius's loyalists, who still occupied high positions in the civil administration. Some of these ministers were widely despised by the populace for their blatant corruption. As such, their removal from office took a series of trials held in the suburb of Constantinople called Chalcedon in December of 361. Julian, wishing to maintain the illusion of impartiality, did not participate directly in the Chalcedon Tribunal. Instead, he merely stacked the court with politicians and military officers who he knew were loyal to him. Still, the harsh punishments meted out to the convicted make the Chalcedon Tribunal a black mark on Julian's historical legacy. Some seem to be more deserving of their fates than others, however. The late emperor's chief steward, Apodemius, and his spymaster, Paulus, were both widely reviled for their abuses of power. Both of these men were sentenced to death. Although the method of their execution, being burned alive, 
surely rubbed some the wrong way. One man caught up on the wrong end of these trials was Arusilus, a finance minister under Constantius, whom Julian had befriended while he was in Gaul. Julian would rather have seen the man pardoned, but he was deeply unpopular with the army. The army officers in charge of the tribunal sought the death penalty, and Julian, fearing that he could not afford to alienate his men, allowed them to proceed. He was rather broken up about the man's death and made sure that his orphaned daughter received her father's property upon his execution. Also put on trial was Florentius, the conniving minister who had caused Julian so much trouble when he was in Gaul. He was sentenced to death in absentia and remained on the land throughout all of Julian's reign. By the end of January 362, the trials had concluded. Julian could put that nasty bit of business behind him and turn his attention to the bureaucracy at large. According to one likely apocryphal story, one day early in his reign, Emperor Julian sent for a barber to give him a haircut. When a gaudily dressed barber arrived on the scene, Julian mistook him for some sort of minister of finance and sent him away. He was bewildered when the man informed him that he was indeed a barber, and furthermore that his salary was 20 times the amount of a commoner, and that he received many other financial benefits on the side. Julian dismissed the man from his position on the spot. As Julian realized, this was indicative of Constantius's bureaucracy at large. The imperial court, as he inherited it from Constantius, was a, quote, teeming hive of slaves and eunuchs, petty functionaries and flatterers, whose trifling tasks were grotesquely disproportionate to their personal magnificence, end quote. Constantius, however, cannot be blamed, at least not entirely, for this state of affairs. The late Roman Empire has indeed acquired a historical reputation for having a bloated and corrupt bureaucracy, the development of which can be traced back to the Emperor Diocletian. Coming to power in an era when the Roman Empire had nearly collapsed in on itself during the crisis of the 3rd century, Diocletian had sought to reform the empire to prevent such a crisis from ever occurring again. Among Diocletian's much lauded reforms was the further centralization of the imperial administration and a massive expansion of the imperial bureaucracy. But at the same time, an important ideological shift was occurring too. When Augustus Caesar took power back in the 1st century CE, he had made some pretense of maintaining a semblance of republican government as he guided the transition of the Roman state from a republic to an empire. From Augustus onward, the, empire, the emperor styled himself as a man of the people, claiming legitimacy by popular mandate. In many regards, Diocletian stripped away this republican facade to reveal the true nature of imperial power. The position of emperor was remodeled to resemble that of a divine monarch of the East, who derived his power from heaven above rather than the masses below. Diocletian and his immediate successors displayed their power physically in the forms of jewels and diadems, and in massive palaces. The person of the emperor himself was practically made into a living god. Emperors withdrew from the public eye to the point where, be where being in his presence was reserved only for the most privileged members of his court. Naturally, an elaborate hierarchy emerged in the imperial court as a result of all this. All this pomp and circumstance was deeply offensive to an, to an ascetic like Julian, who, s who slept on straw, ate simple food, practiced abstinence, and had a general antipathy towards luxury, ceremony, and basically anything he saw as unessential. Julian fired the multitude of cooks, barbers, manservants, and other general hangers-on that made up Constantius's court, keeping on only those he deemed to be essential. In general, Julian railed against nearly all aspects of the post-Diocletian state, dubbed the dominant by historians. 
In Julian's own assessment, the Empire had fallen far from its ideals, and he took it upon himself to bring it back. Julian's ideal state was the Republic as described by Plato. Julian would reign as though he were a citizen, equal to his subjects, rather than a monarch who was above the law. Julian stressed the importance of wisdom, a sense of justice, and an openness to counsel as traits of an ideal ruler. Very soon after Constantius' death, before he had even returned to Constantinople, Julian sent off a series of letters to old acquaintances of his, requesting their services in the new administration that he planned to build. Many of these intimates of Julian's were pagans like himself, former classmates and tutors that he had met during his academic career, but moreover these men were chosen on the basis of their merit, which is why a number of his prospective appointees were actually outspoken Christians, one of whom was Basil of Caesarea, who has since been canonized into nearly every Christian tradition as St. Basil the Great. The two men had met and befriended each other while they were both studying in Athens, but their paths diverged as Julian was called to military leadership and Basil was called to the church. Basil became the bishop of Caesarea in modern Turkey and acquired a reputation as one of the greatest Christian theologians of the age. Nevertheless, Julian still respected the man for his intellect and invited him to Constantinople to act as some sort of liaison with the empire's sizable Christian community. The feeling of respect, however, was not mutual, and Basil refused Julian's invitation. Julian responded to this snub by changing the name of the city of Caesarea back to its old name, Mazea. With Constantius's men out and his own men in, Julian continued the work of de-dominating the empire, as it were. His next task was to reverse the centralization of the imperial administration. To this end, he sought to delegate more power and authority to local city councils and away from the central government. He recognized that the revival of semi-democratic institutions were the key to achieving this. For example, the Roman Senate, a vestige of the former republic, had remained a mostly ceremonial body during the era of the empire. It had laid largely neglected by the emperors of Rome for quite some time now. Julian wished to elevate it back to the level of importance that it had enjoyed in the days of the republic and the early empire. Julian attended sessions of the Senate and debated in, and participated in some of the debates himself. He frequently emphasized his role as a servant of the Senate, rather than as the master of it. Of course, however, Julian was not opposed to occasionally invoking his absolute power to get things done. For instance, in order to prevent corruption, he mandated that all changes to the current tax regimen, whether the imposition of new taxes or the remittance of pre-existing ones, had to be approved by him personally. He also personally took charge of the efforts to fortify the empire's frontiers. He had seen firsthand the situation in Gaul, and so he sought to oversee the construction of all of the forts along the empire's borders. The eastern provinces especially received his attention. In the early months of Julian's reign, he was approached by ambassadors of the Persian ruler. They had heard that a new emperor now reigned in Constantinople, and thought that he might be willing to offer them more favorable peace terms than Constantius had been. They found Julian to be rather intractable. Instead of offering peace, Julian silently resolved to make war against the insolent Persian nation. In the summer of 363, Julian departed Constantinople for the largest city and unofficial capital of the empire's far eastern provinces, Antioch. Although today the city is an uninhabited ruin, in those days Antioch boasted a population of over 500,000 people, making it the third or fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Sitting at the nexus of Middle Eastern trade, the city had grown large and prosperous since its founding by one of Alexander the Great's generals at the end of the 4th century BCE. 
Such was the city's prominence that when Julian went there to make preparations for a war against Persia, he had in the back of his mind that the city may prove to be a serviceable capital in the place of Constantinople. Julian was eager to distance the empire from the memory of the detested Constantine the Great. The city's cosmopolitan nature had the tendency to alienate outside observers. Historian Edward Gibbon certainly did not hide his own thoughts on the city when he described it as follows, quote, The favorable climate of the East disposed the natives to the most intemperate enjoyment of tranquility and opulence, and the liveliest licentiousness of the Greeks was blended with the hereditary softness of the Syrians. Fashion was the only law, and pleasure was the only pursuit, and splendor of dress and furniture was the only distinction among its citizens. The arts of luxury were honored, but the serious and manly virtues were the subject of ridicule, and the contempt for female modesty and the revenant age announced the universal corruption of the capital of the East. End quote. Hearing Antioch described in such a manner, is it any wonder that the that the supremely austere Emperor Julian would eventually come to loathe the city that he secretly wished to elevate to his supreme status? Julian himself admitted in a letter written after the fact that he had seriously misjudged the city's character from the very beginning. How exactly he managed to overlook these things, especially Antioch's massive Christian population, while making these calculations is beyond me. In the years following the Judean revolt and the expulsion of the Jews from Palestine, Antioch had become a hotbed of both Christian and Jewish settlement. Antioch was one of the first cities that Jesus' apostles had ventured to after his death. And it is also said that in this city, the term Christian was first used to describe the followers of Christ. It was in Antioch that Julian's war on Christianity began in earnest. For Julian, it was not simply good enough to reform and reinvigorate paganism. He had to undermine Christianity. He saw Christianity as a cancer upon Roman society. In his famous anti-Christian tract entitled Against the Galileans, Galileans, of course, being his favorite derogatory term for Christians, Julian wrote, quote, the fabrication of the Galileans is a fiction of men composed by wickedness. It has in it nothing divine, and by making use of the part of the soul which loves fable and is childish and foolish, it has induced men to believe that this monstrous tale is the truth. End quote. Julian asserted that Christian beliefs were simply antithetical to Roman civilization, and as such the religion had to be eradicated. The opening salvo of Julian's war against Christianity took a rather unusual form. It was a declaration of universal religious toleration. To us in the modern day, such a thing sounds eminently reasonable, but back in the day, it was practically monumental. Although the Edict of Milan, issued by Constantine the Great back in the year 313, technically only legalized the practice of Christianity, it, in effect, made it the unofficial state religion of the Roman Empire. Various restrictions had been placed on pagan worship by Constantine in the years since, and especially by Constantius, who was far more zealous in his persecution of pagans than his father had been. Policies instituted by the two previous emperors included a total halt on the building of all new pagan places of worship, the prohibition of pagan sacrifices, as well as on the worship of pagan idols, and practically all other public forms of pagan religious expression. The penalty for violating these laws was death. Julian's Edict of Tolerance, however, effectively lifted all these restrictions. Julian's edict stipulated that religious persecution would not be tolerated whether it was carried out by the state or by individuals. To his credit, this seems to have been a genuinely held conviction of Julian's. Considering that he had the resources of the state at his disposal, he could just as easily have carried out a genocide against the Christians. 
The methods of persecution that Julian undertook were explicitly non-violent. He had the potential to do great harm to Christendom nonetheless. Julian followed up his Edict of Religious Toleration with a series of further edicts placing restrictions on Christians. Intending to marginalize Christians from the rest of Roman society, the most significant of these measures was one that forbade Christians from teaching or learning classical literature. This was far more significant than it sounds at first, because a firm understanding of these classics was all but essential to holding public office in Roman society. In depriving Christians of their ability to receive a classical Roman education, Julian was effectively barring them from participating in Roman political life. Had these laws remained in effect for longer than they were in reality, Christians could have become completely disenfranchised within a couple of generations. This so-called school edict of Julian's remains to this day the act for which he is most reviled by Christians. Even Amanius Marcellinus, a pagan who typically depicted Julian in sympathetic light, condemned this action as, quote, a cruel action that deserves to be buried in everlasting silence, end quote. Julian's edict of toleration went unheeded by others as well. The sudden shift in the religious landscape of the empire brought about a sudden wave of violence. Across the empire, Christians, desperate to cling on to their high societal status, lashed out at pagans, and pagans alternatively lashed out at the Christians who had antagonized them for the past decades. An exemplary case of this religious violence was one of George of Cappadocia, a Christian bishop and childhood tutor of Emperor Julian. The pagan community of Alexandria, which had long been subject to the bishop's abuses, took Julian's edict as carte blanche to take their revenge. A mob swarmed the bishop's church and lynched him. Despite his public stance against this very sort of thing and his personal connection with the victim, Julian could not bring himself to punish the city, leaving them merely with a stern warning not to do it again. The change in imperial religious policy also led to an uptick in sectarian conflict among the Christians themselves. In this period, quote-unquote Christians were far from being a unified group. Historically speaking, this period is far off from the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century or even the Catholic Orthodox schism of the 11th, but there were still many divisions among Christendom, mainly having to do with extremely obscure theological arguments that I am not prepared to parse here. Suffice it to say that the largest division within Christianity at the time of Constantine and his successors was the split between those who had accepted the results of the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Christians, and those who did not, the followers of the rogue Bishop Arius, called Arians. The past two emperors had supported one of the two sides against the other. Constantine tacitly supported the Nicene stance, while Constantius was an ardent Arian, and clamped down hard on what he perceived to be heresy, going so far as to have a number of Nicene bishops deposed and sent into exile. Julian supported neither faction. For the past few decades, either side had used the power of the state to suppress their opponents and advance their own interests. Now, all of a sudden, the proverbial rug had been pulled out from under them, and they were left to fend for themselves, which of course meant fighting amongst each other for dominance, which is exactly what Julian had hoped for. In fact, in order to worsen conflict within the Christian community, Julian had the Nicene bishops exiled by Constantius restored to their positions. Indeed, Julian's quest to undermine Christendom led him to seek out some strange allies, including the Jews. Julian's gripe with the Christians wasn't so much theological as it was political. As we've seen, his actions against Christians have mainly been intended to shut them out of the halls of power and influence. He wasn't entirely intolerant of monotheism. In fact, Julian's own writing indicates a certain respect that he had for the Jewish religion. He appreciated Judaism's veneration of ancestors and the importance that it played on sacrifices. 
Primarily, however, Julian sought the political alliance of Jews, not only because they shared a common enemy amongst the Christians, but also because they did not pose a direct threat to his project of pagan revival. Jews, more often than not, stuck to their own community, and, unlike the Christians, the Jews were generally tolerant of pagans and did not attempt to proselytize to them. Julian resolved to win the favor of the Jews by rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The temple, of course, being the holiest site in all of the Jewish religion. Not only was it the central place of worship and sacrifice in Judaism, but it was also said that the presence of God was held within. During the Jewish-Roman wars of the first century CE, the temple was destroyed during the siege of Jerusalem. Following that war, the Roman authorities banished Jews from the city entirely. Thus, the Jews were prohibited from rebuilding their temple. Julian, rather magnanimously, promised to right the wrongs of his predecessors, and to have the temple rebuilt. It is difficult not to see Julian's efforts to rebuild the temple as being almost entirely cynical. It served a very specific purpose, beyond just winning Jewish favor. In rebuilding the temple, he would be invalidating a biblical prophecy, in which Jesus claimed that the temple would be destroyed and, quote, not one stone will be left upon another, end quote. By rebuilding the temple, Julian would be proving the Christian Messiah to be a liar, and this would deal a massive blow to Christians everywhere. The efforts to rebuild the temple began in the spring of 363. Julian appointed one of his most energetic officials to oversee the project, and he received massive popular support from the relatively small Jewish community that still lived in the area, who eagerly provided the capital and the labor for the project. Construction on the project had only just commenced when, according to Amanius Marcellinus, quote, several balls of fire burst forth near the construction site, burning several workers and rendering the area inaccessible, end quote. The Christian faithful attribute this occurrence to divine intervention, foiling the plans of the apostate emperor. A more likely explanation might be the massive earthquake that struck the region in May of that year. Whatever the case, the efforts to rebuild the temple were put on hold, and, due to circumstances outside their control, were never resumed. To this day, no further attempts have been made by Jews or otherwise to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. If you'll recall from earlier, I mentioned that Julian's religious policies had two crucial aspects to it, undermining Christianity and at the same time reinvigorating paganism. Unfortunately for Julian, he would find that the latter was a far more difficult task than the former. The pagan religion had already been on the decline before the advent of Christian rule in 313. These developments in tandem certainly took their toll. Although a plurality of the empire's population still professed some sort of paganism, this was a religion largely without leadership, or unification. To openly worship as a pagan in this day and age was itself a risky prospect, much more so for priests. Julian identified the Christians' leadership and organizational ability as among their greatest assets, so he sought to replicate these things within paganism. Rebuilding pagan temples and reinstating ritual sacrifices were the first step. He sought to form a new pagan priesthood. The role of priest in the pagan community of this era was a ceremonial one at best, and actively dangerous at worst. Dangerous because of state-sanctioned persecution, and ceremonial because a priest's duties typically amounted to very little more than offering the occasional animal sacrifice, and once sacrifices were outlawed, there was effectively nothing for these men to do. Julian wanted them to not only begin offering sacrifices in public again, but also to take on a societal role analogous to the Christian priests. In Julian's conception, pagan priests should be moral paragons for their society, helping the poor and sick and refraining from behavior deemed to be immoral. 
Looking back on it, it seems that Julian's efforts to reform paganism, essentially in the image of Christianity, were doomed to fail from the very beginning, if for nothing else than the fact that paganism and Christianity were radically different from one another in a few crucial regards. Paganism was not really a religion as such, rather it was a collection of various traditions from across the empire. Unlike Christianity, it had no central text, no common prophetic figure, and not even a fixed pantheon of gods. More importantly, it lacked the popular appeal of Christianity. Christianity's appeal, at least at this time, was to the masses of society. Paganism could only be actively practiced by society's elites. Julian would have to overcome all these obstacles in order to see paganism triumph over Christianity. And ultimately, these issues would prove to be insurmountable. Well, this episode has gone on for quite long enough, so I think I'm going to have to save Julian's showdown with the city of Antioch and his war against Persia for the next episode, which will be in two weeks. Until then, please feel free to address any comments, questions, concerns, etc. that you have to the show's email address, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Again, you can also reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which will be in the episode's description. If you like the show and would like to help support me, consider leaving the show a positive review on your podcast listening platform of choice by becoming a patron on Patreon or by purchasing some used books from me on eBay. In any event, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'd like to thank you once more for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off. Thank you.